My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. As we head into our final run of 2023 episodes, I want to thank you for being here with us and welcome you to this podcast space. Make yourself comfortable and settle in. Today, we are focusing on the tunes crafted by John Carroll Kirby. You've probably heard about John, especially in our previous Transmissions episode with Eddie Chacon. And I'm so excited to welcome him here for a conversation. John's music exemplifies the current zone where jazz, new age, fusion, R&B, electronic composition, and soul all mingle. In addition to his work with Eddie, he's collaborated with people like Blood Orange, Solange, and Frank Ocean, plus many more. His own records, including this year's Blowout, demonstrate where he's coming from musically. Like so many of his albums, the native Angelino recorded it far from home in Costa Rica. Travel is a constant for him, and it comes up in this conversation, inspired by uh, the time I spent watching his very enjoyable web series, Kirby's Gold. It's kind of a travelogue that finds him trying on his best Huel Hauser with musicians from all around this incredible planet of ours. Our talk was an absolute blast, and I'm excited to roll the tape for you. But before we do that, we have a crucial spiel to get through. Transmissions is brought to you by listeners like yourself, who pledge their support on Patreon. You'll get exclusive audio, notes, radio extras, and more out of the deal. But mostly what you'll be doing is help us continue to create and offer our work. Independent music media is in flux. I don't need to tell you that. But even if we can't count on industry support, we know that we can count on you, our readers, and our listeners to bolster and affirm our efforts. So thank you to all our existing Patreon supporters. You mean the world to us, and we couldn't do this without you. And if you're listening and you think, hey, I would like to join their number, you can do so by pledging over at Patreon. All right, thanks so much. Without any further chatter, how about we get into it? Here's John Carroll Kirby. I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Thanks for being with us here on Transmissions. Thank you. 
Thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where am I speaking to you from today? I'm in L.A. at my home in L.A. in Highland Park. <clears throat> you you grew up in L.A., right? Yeah, I grew up in Pasadena. Yeah, so not far from there. Wow. Is it, I, you know, so I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's a rare enough thing for somebody uh, to be from Phoenix. Mm. Uh, I'm from Arizona. I've lived in Arizona my whole life. I grew up here. Uh, yeah. Do you do you find uh, are there do you find yourself surrounded by a lot of native Angelinos? Not too many. Not too many. Um, where I grew up in Pasadena was like not so much like a entertainment hub as as like sure. the, the rest of sort of L.A. proper. Um, <laughs> few few musicians though, which is cool. Um, but yeah, not too many. I don't know where they all go because there's tons of kids being born here, but I guess they leave or I don't know what. Uh, but yeah, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of my friends, I'd say the majority of my friends are transplants. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I've really been enjoying hanging out with blowout. Congrats on another fantastic record. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, sorry about that. It feels, feels really good to have it out in the world and yeah, be getting so much feedback on it. So thank you. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, there's so many great moods and vibes. And of course you've got a way with tone and there's so many tasty tones on this record. You know, I kind of, I have heard your stuff first through your collaborations and then mm. kind of worked my way to your solo stuff. Mm. Um, and all of it, especially like the Eddie Chacon stuff, right? Where you're working very closely with Eddie and we've had him on this show. Um, I feel a lot of kinship between the the way you make records with him and, and maybe the way you make records with your own group. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, you know, I think Eddie's Eddie's project is, is certainly different and, and has a different story and approaches it. Dif things are approached differently and, you know, it's a collaboration. So, um, you know, any idea I want to execute, I have to run by him pretty much. And he has to do the sure. same for me. And that, um, I, I love that balance in my, in my work these days where I have my solo stuff. Um, and that's gratifying in that there's nobody I have to get clearance from for any, any idea, you know, particularly, um, on the other hand, when it's your own work, you might you might be in your own head about it, you know, and you have to sort of check yourself on all those artistic questions. Um, and right. so that's that's where I find gratification in collaborating with other people, because uh, then it kind of gets you out of your own head a little bit. So you're you're not stewing over these ideas uh, as much. You can say, do you like this? And the person likes it. You roll with it. And that's sure. the project. I think par partially what I was thinking about is when I, cause I'm always so curious about the, the environment where music is made. And when I've talked with him about recording with you, he will often talk about a very laid back approach and that it's not as intensive as what people might think of 
when you guys are making a record as like studio time, especially, I mean, he was kind of talking with me about basically doing vocal takes just with the playback going. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the booth, uh, when it comes to vocals and I've seen, you know, plenty of great people that I work with just cut things in the room. I feel like the booth kind of isolates you. I mean, hence the name ISO booth. Um, yeah, <laughs> but in a lot of ways it, it kind of takes you out of the process and you have to be constantly like, um, communicating to the engineer what you want. And then it's kind of stoppy starty. Um, you can't see, you know, another thing I, I like to do when I'm tracking is as much as possible, be able to see the, the screen, you know, of the pro tools or logic or whatever it is session. So you can kind of see what's coming up and it kind of serves as like a, uh, a reminder of, of the next section and the arrangement of the song. Um, sure. So that, that's my approach, you know, um, and that's also dictated by the setup that I have, which doesn't have an ISO booth and, and doesn't have a very high tech studio. Um, and I think that's what's contributed to the charm of, of Eddie's records. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. And I mean, although I'm sure you approach making a record like blowout, it's like you said, it's not the same thing as making a record with him. I think that, that, um, that thing you're talking about wanting to preserve a sense of the moment for the vocalist, I feel like that does carry over really to all the stuff that you are a part of is that sort of seeming, uh, a, like an, a, an attention on sort of creating an environment and a vibe and then allowing that to sort of inform the work, you know? Uh, mm. yeah. Do you, do you, is, mm. is that, is that a relationship that you feel, you know, is just part of how you approach music and, and sort of how did, how did you come to that sort of understanding? Yeah, that is very much how I approach music. Um, definitely don't like things being too perfect, too constructed. Um, and I think, you know, my approach, if I were to name one thing, I would say that is for my approach, my approach in that, uh, in some ways I came up in a pretty structured musical environment, environment, mainly studying music in a conservatory, um, mm -hmm. where those types of things are certainly not taught and oftentimes not even allowed. Um, you know, and for good reason, you're in a conservatory to learn the techniques, to learn how to get control of your instrument, how to compose for an ensemble, whatever it is. You're not sure. No one's going to, intentionally teach you how to do it wrong but um i've found doing things wrong in my own version of wrong has um let let things feel more uh intuitive idi idiosyncratic and more interesting i think i you know the music that i listen to um is oftentimes wrong uh it, from a sort of musical theory or sort of technique perspective so uh i find it i find it more interesting and i find that you might come across uh, a fresher idea if you're allowing yourself to do things a bit wrong yeah i think the freedom to do it incorrectly is very crucial <laughs> yeah um incorrect is such a funny it's a funny way to even think about it because 
we know that context is everything. So kind of in theory, there should be no such thing as incorrect, you know, unless it's somehow disturbing the song. But often what you're talking about, those individual idiosyncratic elements that a player or a producer can bring to a project, those are often the thing that give it all the character. And I think that when I listen to your records, I think it's obvious that you have a respect for getting great sounds and recording great performances and having the records kind of shine in that way that a lot of classic, you know, jazz or even fusion records can, but not sacrificing all those idiosyncrasies, you know, and it doesn't feel sterile if that, if that tracks. Absolutely. And I think I should say like, I use that, that term wrong or incorrect for myself as as a pass for myself say to say well sure. what could be the worst um worst case scenario here well worst case scenario is it's wrong and as it turns yeah. out and as it turns out wrong ain't so bad anyway so you know yeah. maybe in saying that it's kind of my own trick to myself to get get myself to loosen up a little bit it sounds like it's a kind of freedom and a, a, a kind of a permission to to be free in that way. When you're coming from a conservatory, I mean, that's something that you had to, what did the process look like of sort of learning how to lean into that more intuitive approach? Because I have to imagine, you know, studying it requires approaching it from the other side uh, pretty extensively. Yeah. You know, the, the more intuitive approach came later um, and really came about as as a process of all the collaborations that I had mm. in my career prior to releasing my solo stuff where I was working with mostly people who didn't have the background that I had. Um, so they didn't really have the concept, the, the, such a strong concept of right and wrong or incorrect and correct as I did. And we're often better off for it, you know? Um, so many musicians like are self-taught and have, find a way to make music on their own. Um, and I was lucky to work with so many of those people and, you know, piece by piece sort of um, gather all their techniques um, that may not have been um, agreeable to all the ones that I learned uh, in the conservatory. Sure, sure. You're talking about playing on other people's records and th and in that case it's a situation where you're are you when you're get, when you're first starting out is it a situation where you're hired because your chops are really solid is that sort of the the criteria or is it sometimes more personal connections to the artists uh, I, I think it, it was both you know i i think yeah i could i could play the notes that for the most of the gigs i had and you know, that is with the disclaimer that I wasn't getting called for, uh, you know, the Frank Zappa reunion band. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, sure. I, I could play most of the notes that were re required of me, but, um, yeah, I would like to think that, um, that personal connections and just also just trying at least to be a, a good person to get on with, um, help me have some success. That to me is one of the big mysteries of somebody who, you're somebody who you play live, of course, and you work as a producer, 
uh, you, but you work in the studio in a lot of different forms and you do a lot of different roles. And I just think about, you know, to be a session player or to come in and contribute on projects that requires such a skill set and such an interpersonal sort of way of being. I just, I just wonder like how you even, you know, were you really, what, what were your first experiences in the studio being hired by like other folks to come in and work on their record? What were those experiences like? And did it require, I mean, was that nerve wracking? I could imagine it being nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know, I, I still catch myself doing it where I, I would never bring this to the studio, but I have these like fantasies that play out in my head. Well, oh, well, if they if they tell me to do this, then I'm just going to tell yeah. them to fuck off and walk out. You know, I'm sure everyone who has a job sort of has these fantasies where they well, if they ask me to do that <laughs> one more time, I'm just going to tell them to fucking take a hike. And, and um <laughs> I, I still catch myself doing that every now and again. I used to do it a lot, but I think that was all sort of like a protective element, you know, um, because some of those first experiences could be nerve wracking and could certainly be nerve wracking by the people running the sessions, the producer or the artist or whoever. And in the early stages of my career, they, they weren't always, you know, the most experienced and the most talented and, and so people would might make you do a take over and over and over to the point where you, you know, where you start getting actually getting worse in the performance. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, I actually think my, my, uh, what do they call that? Diminishing returns start around. Lot, yeah. You know, start pretty quickly. Maybe three three or four takes in, I'm kind of like, eh, if it's not getting better by now, you know, there's exceptions to that. Um, sure. But in gen if I were to generalize, I feel like in the studio, yeah, three or four takes in and it's like starting to go downhill. You're starting to lose some of that, uh, some of that magic. Yeah. You know, to me that, that magic you're talking about is, is, is very interesting and it's what people are after, of course, when they're in a recording environment. But we had John Leckie, uh, the great producer and engineer, and many very a bunch of roles in music. He was on this show, and he was talking with me about being like a tape operator at Abbey Road. And in those days, it was just his job to just press the button uh, to start recording. And so he was in all these legendary sessions, but the whole time he's kind of in this role where he can observe and be taking in what's happening and what everybody's doing. And he started to understand the sort of, uh, the sort of energy balance and balancing qualities that a producer needed to have. And then at some point he thought to himself, I think I could, I could do that. And I wonder what were some of the moments for you that indicated that you wanted to move from being just somebody who's helping to contribute to somebody who's kind of guiding the process in a more active way. You know, I think really what it was is, is maybe, um, maybe being a little unfulfilled as being a sideman uh, all over mm, those sure. years, um, despite having amazing experiences. And I don't want anyone to mistake that for me being ungrateful for those opportunities. Um, but maybe feeling just like I had a little bit, more to offer than that um that yeah 
you can hire me to play these notes correctly and I'll I'll probably do it pretty pretty good um but maybe I have some you know some creative input uh, into the shaping of the song uh into the sound of the of the recording whatever that may be um I always kind of felt like I I had a bit a bit more to offer in that sense and I think what allowed me to do that is also that um, the role of a producer is changing and the role of a songwriter is changing, you know. Um, Are those things becoming more porous? I, I, think, I think it's a result of kind of everything happening all at once where people might be writing, producing, recording, even mixing all at the same time you know what i mean yeah um yeah and that's kind of just a result of everybody having a computer and and this software getting more user-friendly where you know it's not like a quincy jones coming in and having horn arrangements and having the song already written and having um you know having everything kind of mapped out um so many sessions are are not that these days you know that it kind of everyone's a producer in a sense yeah. because the song is being written and essentially often produced on the spot. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, and I imagine that there's parts of that, that, that this very exciting proposition for you in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is exciting. And I think like has allowed me to, to work with a whole range of people. Do you feel like, I mean, I don't know what was the first stuff that made you really want to get into music, but when I've talked with various folks from circles, like people like Carlos Nino or whatever, I'll talk with these guys and people will talk about how hip hop was foundational to their sort of sonic understanding of the world. And some of what you're talking about sounds the way I hear a lot of hip hop described in its sort of origin, you know what I mean? Like people are sort of composing in real time, working with samples, manipulating sound, all of that happening in a concentrated flow. Um, what, what, you know, is that, what was the first stuff that made you really want to play music yourself? Mm. Yeah. I mean, hip hop was, was certainly a part of it. Um, I was born in 83 um yeah. so so i guess by the time i was a teenager it was the mid mid 90s um and tons of great great music coming out of that i remember actually when i was even younger my friend had an older brother and he made us a mixtape that i was playing in the car on the way to school and the little mermaid had just come out and so he <laughs> he had put a, a few little mermaid cuts on there and then following sure. following that he had put a few nwa cuts wow and i was remember listening to that and i thought the mix i didn't i didn't know that that was weird um it was just uh just the way that mixtape worked <laughs> it was just the way the mixtape went and we you know we were listening in the car and and nwa came on and my mom was like wait what what's this, what's this you know what what like easy e like, sure what is this guy saying like damn vibe sh vibe shift yeah. yeah major vibe shift so um but yeah i guess i guess that if that's in any indicator of 
you know, my music taste being formed, it, it was, you know, usually pr- pretty broad. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think all that stuff about hip hop, like, it, it is important, you know, the samples, especially from a, a jazz upbringing is really, really cool, because it's like, a, like a treasure hunt, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, and sometimes you'll hear that sample in the wild on it, on its original recording and you're like oh my god that's that thing and it's just this one bar of whoever that, yeah that you didn't know what it was but then you hear the whole piece and you you hear the context totally different um that's always such a cool feeling to me it really is yeah it really is and and i've just past few days i've been listening to a lot of reggae stuff and th- they have that a bit too like how sure dance hall records are sampling these old like few bars of reggae things and they have a whole like kind of recycling program in their music. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, 100% people like Lee scratch Perry talk about somebody mm-hmm. who's mixing and, and producing and yeah. all, everything all at once. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even before, even before they were computers. So you get a sense of that sort of, uh, no, but I, I, I know what you're talking about and I feel like, I feel like the relationship between hip hop and jazz is so amazing right now. And that right now the relationship between jazz and hip hop and electronic music, especially among younger musicians and people who are coming up, all of these things are kind of intuitively tied in their mind. It seems to me uh, that, that there's this sort of interesting in a weird way, like Jay Dilla of course is not a jazz musician, but somehow he feels like a jazz musician too. You know what I mean? hundred percent. I mean, in, in conservatory, like Jay Dilla was just like that, that is like, I mean, I'm just, I, I would imagine it still is, you know, I have a friend who's almost 20 years younger than me and he, he's a big Jay Dilla head. Like that stuff, it just kind of blows your mind. Like what he was able to do. And yeah, he had a sort of jazz musician's approach to it. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. I I don't know if you read that that Dilla Time book that Dan Charnas put out last year, mm. but yeah, he t- he talked about these young jazz musicians coming up and they're learning how to play those beats, and those beats weren't ever played on drum kits. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like some of that Dilla stuff, and it's so cool to me that that people are coming at. It's a reminder to me just how much in conversation genre is, and especially in a place like. LA and growing up in Southern California. I wonder what sense you had of the music culture growing up. Did you have a sense of regionalism, like an interest in the music from the place specifically? You know, I did. My earliest memory of that was a a man who was my mentor named John Clayton, who um, had grown up in Venice. Um, and played uh one of his first gigs was in count basie's orchestra um, wow and be- later on went to work with all, all kinds of people and, but who who i guess i remember um someone calling calling his project very west coast and using it kind of derogatorily uh in what sense do you think the what 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 was where was the heart of the diss? Yeah, so I think in jazz, like West Coast, this is more like a '50s '60s thing. 
but West Coast kind of meant easy breezy, not tuneful, tuneful, lighthearted, slower, um, sure, less technical, less in a way, less to say, kind of more easy listening. Um, sure. And so I've always kind of I I remember that distinctly, and I and I think like have applied that in my music in a way like you know because then there's a a a sense of like kind of owning up to the west coastness of it and yeah when i go on tour people are always like your music sounds like very californian um and i'm cool with that and i and i and i think i kind of yeah i'm not going to say i like intentionally try to make california sounding stuff but i allow that to happen and um and I think uh, I think that's cool. I, I I think um I think people might be drawn to that who don't live in California. It might kind of represent something kind of easy breezy uh, that that they might lack in a in a colder environment. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of there being uh, that to me, a lot of what you're talking about there obviously is that the music would have, you know, recognizable melodies and stuff like that. And that's the stuff that might get called, you know, West coast. But to me, it really speaks to the kind of, you know, the songwriting quality of what you're doing, uh, because there is a sense of direction and structure and resonance to these as compositions. What is it like for you with the band at this point? Do you come in with pretty defined ideas of what it is that everybody's going to be playing? Or is it a little bit more open and you have a rough structure or some combination of all of it? It's um, it's probably, I would say, 85, 85% done. Like when I go into the studio with the band, and then again, it's a, sort of a product of um, of resources like... I'm trying to just minimize the time in the studio and the time that I'm paying um, for people's, for the players day rates. So sure. Um, as much as I can without sacrificing anything musically, I, I try to come in with things I've charted out and demos and like a pretty clear idea of how I want things to sound. Yeah. Um, and then I, within that, I, I try to, allow for some room for some improvisation and you know for people to get creative um yeah i I think i'm thinking i haven't really started much for a next project but i would like the next project to be a bit more kind of like what we were talking about a bit more collaborative uh in the studio somehow yeah this record you i know that so you wrote these songs uh, in Costa Rica, is that right? Yeah, yeah, good, good portion of them I did. Is that a situation where you go to a place specifically to write? Uh, was that the case with this particular visit? So I went down there to stay in a a friend's hotel, and they were, you know, offering it as a residency. Mm. Um, so I did go down there to write, but I didn't necessarily go down there to write my next album. If that distinction makes sense i just went down there and and had a, a few pieces of gear and um yeah. just kind of tried to see what what would happen were um, you playing live at all in as a part of that residency or were you just doing stuff on your own so i was um so i played a, a gig or two 
like just at the hotel, um, just as part of this sort of exchange of the residency. Um, yeah. But then I also met some Calypso players there and, and became friends with them and would actually go and join them at their gigs uh, every now and oh, again uh, in town. And yeah, that, that's that, really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. It, it was really fun. And, you know, so many Calypso songs are like one, two, three chords max, you know, so maybe four chords. So, and so you could, so I went in there a lot of times not having ever heard the songs and just kind of following along. And that was really fun. This kind of, that's a, yeah, that's fantastic. Toes. Yeah. Had you been to Costa Rica before? Where were you? Where were you? you were in uh, Puerto Vallejo? Yeah, Puerto Viejo. Um, no, I'd never been. Yeah. I'd never been. Uh, it was an amazing place. And yeah, I'm trying to go back. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I know, you know, you also, you went to Ibiza to uh, to write some of the Eddie Chacon record or to work on that. Do you find, like, that travel and the creative process dovetail nicely for for you? I do. I, I very much like it, and it's just a fun way to enjoy your life and enjoy what you do. And I was actually late but i'm doing my taxes this week and just looking over my past years i'm like oh man it's pretty pretty good life um yeah just getting to i mean hop all over the place i mean mm. to me it, it's i i watched some of the the uh kirby's gold some of the 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 video series that you have on your site and man the episode where you were doing playing with the 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 gamelon ensemble i forget that was in Bali, maybe. Yeah, Bali. And that was uh, is is it Putu Septa? I believe is his name. Yep, that's right. Watching that performance, um, I thought, wow, this is really capturing such a beautiful moment. That jam that you guys do. I mean, first off, gamelan music is so hypnotic and uh, incredible. But to hear you doing those changes under it uh it was really very special what's going through your head in a moment like that you know so when i was talking to putu i was like oh you know what song do you want to do and he he sent me that piece which i think he composed i'm not sure um mm. and i was listening to it and i was like man if i if i try to hang with them 
rhythmically, it's going to be a disaster. Like <laughs> they're just on such a different tip rhythmically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to, so I'm going to make sort of the most ethereal synth sound that I can with like the least, the longest attack and a long release and just make everything kind of ambient uh, on my side because I, just because I knew I wouldn't really be able to to learn their concept of rhythm in the in the few days I had um right and I was okay with that actually I was like you know what I that was sort of something that I I guess going back to what we were talking about earlier like maybe the younger me would be like no I I got to you know I got to crack the code on on Balinese you know gamelan rhythms in the in 3 days and I thought and I was like you know what that I don't know if that's going to really help anybody. Maybe if I had more time and wanted to really dive in, that'd be different. But I thought for the purpose of this, this performance, um, I should just do something more ethereal and just, and that would actually allowed me the freedom to kind of improvise those chords underneath. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I love that, that essentially what you did was serve the listener for sure, because you trying to hang with those guys would have been interesting for sure, but maybe not quite as transportive and lovely as what you guys ended up doing. It looked like that would have been a really fun uh, show to make those Kirby's gold episodes. It almost reminded me of like a, a music version of Anthony Bourdain's no reservations, which I thought was a, a really enjoyable concept. How did that project come together? Yeah, Anthony. Yeah, exactly. Um, Anthony Bourdain is, is a big, big inspiration you know i've i've that's my goal you know one day with with that series is to really be like the anthony bourdain of music and just travel the world and just talk to people and just chop it up and um uh, you know what i love yeah. about anthony bourdain is that they're kind of just mic'd up the whole time and i would love for right. it to, to be like that one day i mean just just go chill and just spend the day with people and just kind of see what happens and that would be awesome um, yeah, you know that the that show came about. I guess I was just you know planning to release some stuff with Stone's Throw, and people on my team were like, you know, you just you know, I, I, it kind of demystifies things, but they were kind of like, you know, content is king. Um, you gotta find some find a way to show people who you are, um, and. I've, I've, you know, I, I wanted to do it in a, still a, a less disposable format than a lot of the content out there. Um, yeah, you really achieved that, and it's nice for well, somebody to do that. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was that was the in intention, and I, I think you know, it makes my rate of output a lot lower than a lot of musicians out there. But I guess I still wanted, you know there there's a sort of kind of musician on the internet on social media that i would call a content musician um where they're just making content and maybe not even making albums they're just sort of in front of their you know home recording setup and just producing snippets of music and and that's fine god bless but um i i don't want to be doing that yeah yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that, and I feel like that show uh, had a lot more to say and a lot more to show, and I really enjoyed the, 
I really enjoyed what you were doing. You know, thinking about that really meditative zone that you get into with the gamelan music, I was really curious, you know, you've worked with a lot of uh, heavy hitters and a lot of fascinating people, but among the people that we've had on this podcast, uh, you've worked with Laraji, and I, um, I find my cosmic worldview a little bit wider each time I talk with him. Um, I also sometimes find myself un- unsure if I understood anything correctly, but also... Um, I just find Laraji to be such a fascinating and tremendous individual. How did you first hook up with him, and what have your impressions been playing with him? We that collaboration happened during quarantine, so it all kind of happened over the internet. Hmm. Um, so I didn't really know much about him as a person until we got together to make the music video, and maybe I kind of already knew this. Maybe I had heard some anecdotes from other people, but what I was taken by was like just kind of how humorous he was and kind of how lighthearted about the whole thing he was. And I think like, you know, people might approach Laraji and and expect like every word out of his mouth to be. No, I think what, what struck me about him was just like how how loose and just how funny he was. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like sure he's a spiritual guy and makes very spiritual music but like he doesn't need to be performing as that all the time and and i thought that was really i think i feel like so many people like want to come across as spiritual and and sort of inject that into every sentence that they have and and seems very exhausting for them and can be exhausting for myself you know yeah, well, I mean, obviously talking about Laraji as, uh, you know, he, one of his forms of meditation is laughter meditation. He's like yeah. a, he's such a, he is like, and he got his start as like a stand-up comedian, which I've all, I always think is so wild to think about him in like the East Village or whatever, you know, kind of in that world. But I agree with what, you, what you're saying, like the whole sort of spiritual journey, uh, journeyman mystique can can start to get weird and and wear on somebody but i think that his music also exudes a kind of uh genuine spirituality that feels so um expansive and involving and i wonder for you you know like what what do do you feel comfortable using the term spiritual to describe your uh approach to music at this point i feel like a lot of the music that you you make certainly could fall under that category yeah i'm cool with that i think like some of my earlier stuff i was sort of more leaning into that i guess i've kind of like been a less a little i think i've tried to be a little less explicit about that um just because i've just been sort of turned off by how much like of that there is on on social media and in music and like you know, everybody wants to be the next Alice Coltrane or whatever. And, uh, and it's good luck. Yeah. And it's become (laughs) like, I don't know. It just feels like a bit of a trope, you know? Sure. And it just like lends itself to so much like insincerity and, and just can be kind of icky. So, um, and maybe in my own life, I've, I've maybe not, 
been so absorbed with like spiritual like study or practice or whatever you want to call it but yeah for sure for sure i i think there is a spiritual element in my music yeah yeah well it's it's one of those things also i think that's it's it's always cool to remember that what I like about a word like spirituality, it's like kind of it's like weakness and its strength is just how amorphous it is, right? So you could define a lot of things as that and mm-hmm. having that quality. But I do think music is like maybe one of the quickest paths to a space where we're allowed access to some something that feels rooted in like a cosmic approach to me without it having to be all that lofty. Right. You just, sometimes you hear a song and it just helps to make you feel good about being alive. And that's as simple as it is. That's a very spiritual experience. And you might get it hearing a snippet of like how bizarre by OMD driving by, you know what I mean? Like, or whatever, who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's really, like continued, like a continued mystery, like why, how music is able to do that. And sometimes so immediately and so powerfully. And it, it, it's really just still, still amazing and still impressive. Yeah. You did, uh, you did a soundtrack a couple of years back, right? Uh, crypto, crypto zoo. Is that what that, is that what that was called? Yeah. I, I hadn't seen it somehow maybe it happened in was it 2020 is that when it came out yeah 2020 or 2021 maybe yeah so i feel like every i i I always felt like i paid attention to stuff that's happening but i get like hit with the recognition every now and then that a lot of stuff has happened over the last couple of years and it's hard to keep up with everything and stuff that I didn't realize. But I, so I haven't had a chance to watch the whole thing, but I went and watched some clips and it looked incredible. And it looked to me like the sort of melding of animation and soundtrack music is always such a, a great combination. Um, is that the first thing you've done in the soundtrack realm? I've done a few other things. Um, for a friend of mine, but that one definitely had the most fanfare. Um, and it was, it was a really cool experience for me. Um, the director Dash Shaw had kind of reached out, um, as a fan of mine and of my solo music and in the process of writing of making the score, he sort of really encouraged me to just make it like a solo album. You know, at one point he was like, Oh, it's nice, but it's like, it's too much film score. Um, ah. And he's like, just make it like a solo album. And that was really cool. That that was just like made the whole process so fun. So you had, yeah. So you had the freedom then to approach it however you wanted, but also still the added, I guess, were you watching cuts as you were going along? Yeah. Yeah. I was composing. Yeah. I was composing. It was, it was pretty close to being edited when I started working on it. And, um, so was like trying, I guess, to make little songs, you know, and it, songs as opposed to like cues or themes, I guess was kind of my sure. intention. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you feel like you would want to go deeper down that road and, and do more soundtrack work? Is it, uh, is it satisfying and, and something that you enjoyed enough to want to, keep doing because i know it's kind of intensive is the thing right 
Yeah, I mean, working with Dash was super cool. I've done like some commercial stuff and I've done shorter film stuff. And, you know, sometimes yeah. it can get into like a revision hell where you're just like 20 revisions in or something and, and you know, still don't know what, what it is that they want. And sometimes they're, they're figuring out what they want. And so um, it can, it can be pretty, pretty difficult, but uh, yeah, I would like to do more of it. I, th I think I would like to do like one, you know, max one a year, you know, yeah. maybe one every two years or something like that just to mix it up. But yeah, I, I find it really fun. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. What is, uh, what's on the horizon? Are you working on, what are, is there anything you can talk about that you're working on right now? Um, I'm not sure what I'm, I'm going, um, I'm going to the South of France, um, to work at a, a really amazing studio, um, owned by Brad Pitt, which has been getting a lot of press lately. It's called Miraval. I, I don't know if I can say who I'm working with, but, um, it, uh, is it a Brad Pitt solo album? <laughs> if if so, please break that news here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. That Man, would be helpful for us. I, I would, I, I <laughs> just hope. maybe just live and maybe just make that up. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on Brad's solo <laughs> album. Um, been we've been trying to hook up for a long time now. No, I hope I get to meet Brad. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. So, yeah. and then um, and, yeah, touring, touring. Um, playing a little, a few Midwest shows, and then off to Europe in the fall. Have you guys already been able to get practices underway and stuff? And have you been working on adapting these songs for the stage? How's that felt? Yeah, yeah, we've been we've been playing a lot. Just got back from um, New York and um, Port Townsend, Washington, over the weekend. Um, had a gig in LA. Before that, was in um, was in Japan, China, um, Bali. On st yeah, yeah. And on stage, are you playing uh, mo mostly, I imagine, you're on the piano, but I mean, do you have a pretty substantial rig that you're bringing uh, for each show? Yeah, so like I have a kind of solo show, which is more sort of like beats, electronics, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and that's uh, sequencers and drum machines and all that. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty substantial piece of gear. Um, <clears throat> and then... Um, yeah, for the band shows, I usually just kind of rent something and then just play like a Rhodes or a Wurlitzer and a synth or something like that. Yeah. When I talked with Eddie about making the last record, he told me about the story in Ibiza about you guys having to track down what might be the only Rhodes on the island. Um, <laughs> and I told him that seemed like it seemed like it was a worthwhile endeavor because the I really enjoy the way that record sounds. And I love hearing you on an electric piano. A Rhodes is kind of one of my favorite instruments. Yeah. I, I can't do the the fake ones, you know, that they, they I feel like the Nords of the world, they can get pretty close in terms of the sound, um, but the feel uh, is still not there. And and so, yeah, it it's like an expensive request and a, it can be a difficult request because they're so heavy. But um, to me, always worth it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's a physicality to the sound that is really difficult to. To, and and no matter how good the the sensitivity is on a on a on an emulator, you never get the exact same kind of attack and and yeah. you can make a lot of difference note to note by the way you approach it. That's always a cool thing about a Rhodes. Well, yeah, yeah, cool. Well, 
I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for being with us here on Transmissions. And uh, I, I really appreciate you being here and, and sharing so much with our listeners. Thank you very much, Jason. Yeah, it was really fun. John Carroll Kirby, how about that? We usually wrap up our series, is uh, like our seasons, they tend to end in November, right before we move into our year in review season. Uh, but there's something I always really like the November conversations. There seems to be a, like a charm to this, this, this month for me specifically. So I'm so glad that you uh, were able to join us for this conversation with John Carroll Kirby. And we know that you have a lot of listening options. There are a lot of podcasts and there are a lot of radio shows and there are a lot of playlists. So the fact that you have chosen to be here with us on Aquarium Drunker Transmissions, we're very honored that you'd carve out the space for us. So thank you. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his discography of library music. You can find more of it by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. Art for this episode was created by Ian Everett. Our executive producer is Justin Gage. He's Aquarium Drunkard's founder, and you should not miss his weekly radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday evening. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. If you're looking for more fascinating reads, interviews, and podcasts, visit the TalkHouse. All right, next week on Transmissions, Connor Habib of the Essential Culture and Philosophy Podcast Against Everyone joins us for a very far-out conversation. I hope that you will join us, and until then, be well. This transmission is concluded. Yeah.